Morning, everybody. Wonderful to see you all again this morning. Open the word of prayer. Father, it's so difficult to understand grace. It's so difficult to comprehend how much you love us, dear Lord, and how much you've blessed us and all that you've done for us. It's hard to comprehend it, dear Father, but you have done this, dear Lord, that we might live, that we might have a full life that we might be blessed in everything that we do, dear Lord, when we do indeed walk after the Spirit of God. Father, we're led by you. We're prompted by you. At every turn, dear Father, we're warned, we're chastised, but we're also so wonderfully blessed. And I ask you, dear Lord, this morning that you would bless us. Please, dear Lord, that you would bless us. Bless us abundantly with the Word of God that you teach us, And bless us, dear Lord, that your spirit would indeed illuminate the truth of your word within our hearts. That we might indeed rejoice and that we might bring light into this dark world. That we might bring hope to a place, dear Lord, that has so little hope looking forward. And that we might be able to express the joy that you have opened up within our own lives. I ask you, dear Lord, that you would be with me, dear Lord, as I preach the word of God and be with my brethren and my friends that are here, that they would receive it, receive the truth of it, and uh, and indeed be wonderfully blessed and rejoicing always, dear Lord, in our Saviour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We sort of um, we sort of forget a lot of the times how how important uh, the Word of God is and and the changes that it can make within our lives. We we've been going through this incredible book, the Book of Romans, and some of you have been there since I started this and I hope it has been a, a blessing to you it's certainly been a wonderful blessing to me it, you know it, it's incredible when you when you you think oh yeah I'll preach on the book of Romans you know yeah no worries that's a good book it's one of my favorites I love that one and then you start and you start bringing out its incredible depth and you realize wow I'm so in over my head you know so in over my head and um and you, you just can't plummet the depths of this book enough, you know. There's so much there. And, uh, and we only, even with, the, um, with so much that we've done, and, and there's been, I, can't, I can't remember how many messages I've done with it, uh, you, you still get the impression that you've only scratched the surface, you know. And uh, this morning he's got a wonderful blessing for us with what, what he's going to be teaching us. So please turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're up to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to be reading from verses 12 to 17. Verses 12 to 17. The text here says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him 
that we may be also glorified together. Therefore, brethren, therefore, brethren, we, we see it right at the beginning. He's not speaking to unbelievers. He's not speaking to people that don't know the Lord. He's not speaking to anybody that doesn't have the Spirit of Christ within them. Therefore, brethren, he's speaking to brethren. And, uh, and that's who he's addressing in this portion of the text. So when we're looking at the doctrines that are here, understand that this is who he's talking to. When he's encouraging, and this is a, this is a text of exhortation, this one. It's not even encouragement. There's a bit of a difference between those two. Um, exhortation is something that is a real forceful Im- Im- implication. He's, he's really trying to bring out how important this is. And encouragement is basically just encouragement, letting us move along. This is an exhortation. And he says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors. That's something else that I want you to, to understand. We are debtors. He doesn't, he doesn't mince words there. We are debtors. But he's also telling us what we're not debtors to. He says, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. Okay? So you've got a little bit of a basic understanding, just a summary as we introduce this. So the first portion of the message this morning is that we are exhorted to live against the flesh. We are exhorted to live against the flesh. The name of the sermon this morning is exhorted to live after the spirit. What do we owe the flesh? Is there anything that we owe to the flesh, do you think? I mean, do, do, we, do, we, do we owe it our allegiance? Do we? I mean, do, do, we, do we owe the flesh our, um, our desires? Do we owe it our, our considerations? Do we owe it our, our lusts? Do we owe it our time? Is there something that we actually owe to the flesh? Now, understand that this flesh isn't referring to the, the things that we need from our day to day. It's not referring to our food and our drink and our clothing. It's not referring to those things. It's referring to the, those, those lusts and desires, the covetousness, the things um, of the eyes you know, that, we, that we see in the pride of life. So this is what it's referring to. What is it that we owe the flesh? What were the rewards? What rewards did we get, do you think, when we followed after the flesh? I ask you in all seriousness. I mean, when you, when you, before you were saved, if indeed you are saved, was there some benefit in following after the flesh? Was there something there that, that you, ah, oh, you really miss? You know? Ah, oh, if I could only... You know, because I really, I don't know about you, but I don't miss anything. There's nothing about what I did prior to my salvation that I long for. I don't long for any of that. There's nothing that we owe it. It's not our allegiance, it's not our trust, it's not our obligation. You know, the mafia in, in Italy had this way of dealing with things. Uh, they would walk into a business... And they would encourage the owner of the business to pay them uh, protection money. And the owner of the business would be protection. I, I, I don't need any protection. And you soon discover that it's protection from the mafia themselves. So as long as you paid the mafia the protection money, the mafia wouldn't trouble you. Okay? As long as you gave to the mafia then they wouldn't trouble you. And the flesh is a little bit like that. It's like a thief 
He charges you for protection from violence from itself. Let me see if I can explain it a little bit more. As a business, you might, might be allowed to continue on as usual, nice and quiet and in peace. But then comes those footsteps. Walking into your store and demanding payment for what it is not due. For what it is not due. You feel as though you can't stand and that you're indebted to it and that if you don't pay, greater will be your calamity. Greater will be your calamity. So you give heed to it and you pay it. But God has promised. He actually says in Scripture, He says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. But yet we have not resisted unto blood, the Bible says. And it speaks about that in Hebrews 12.4. We haven't resisted unto blood. We haven't resisted the flesh. We haven't resisted the temptations unto blood. We haven't resisted to the point that we can completely give ourselves over to the Lord and not give ourselves over to the flesh. Yet the Lord continues all the time through His Spirit, if you are born again, minute by minute, moment by moment, He is there giving you a way out. He's giving you a way out at every point. There's an opportunity to, 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 to come out, to be, to be away from the flesh. He's given us the avenues He's provided, and yet we're fooled in believing that we are indebted and we've got to repay. We've got to repay the flesh. And still we don't know, nor do we consider that it's for our life. Verse 13, it actually says, For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. The Bible says elsewhere, The thief comes not, but for to steal and to kill. So too the flesh has no other purpose. The flesh doesn't have another purpose. The mafia didn't have another purpose. They didn't have another purpose. Nor does the flesh. Um... There's no goal to the flesh that is set for joy or fulfilment. It's purpose to kill. That's the purpose of it. I know that you don't take that really, really seriously as what it says, but that's what the Bible teaches here. You know, it's there to kill. It's the worst of assassins. You know why? Because we treat it as a brother. We bring it as close as we can into our hearts and into our lives. This is what we do with the flesh. We coddle it. We, we, we think it's cute. You know, we have it sitting right next to us. We want it to be a part of our lives, but we sort of want to try and keep a little bit distance from it. And yet, that's not what we are called to do. We put before the flesh a great treasure trove to lust after, just like Hezekiah did. Turn your Bibles to this passage. It's in Second Kings. I wouldn't mind you turning there only because... Keep your finger in Romans... Because we're also going to be looking at a passage in 1 Kings. In 2 Kings, Hezekiah was responding to Isaiah's request. So it's in 2 Kings chapter 20, sorry, 2 Kings chapter 20, we're looking at just verses 15 to 17. And I want you to consider this as something, the Bible says something beautiful, it says all that was written aforetime was written for our learning. So there's a lot of practical examples we can go through in scripture and see um, some similarities to, to what we go through today. 2 Kings chapter 20 and 
at verse 15, Hezekiah is responding to Isaiah. Isaiah came to him and asked him, you know, what, what have you showed? What have you showed the Babylonian princes that came in? And Hezekiah responded and said, All the things that are in mine house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. And we do that. We do that with the flesh. We do that with the flesh. There's nothing about ourselves that we've kept away from the flesh. All the things that we want to desire is at our hands and at our disposal. And sometimes we are too quick to give ourselves over to it. And in a moment of weakness, we will do that. We will give ourselves completely over to the flesh. And have a look at what Isaiah said in verse 16. And Isaiah said unto Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. We, we show the flesh, we show this thief our heart. Um, and his desire will be to take away all that we have. We leave nothing behind, and when we realise it, we say with Ahab, king of Israel, Mark, I pray you, and see how this man seeketh mischief. We, we don't realise how much is in demand by the flesh, how much more it desires. It doesn't just desire that little bit that we offer it. Okay, it's like the mafia again. It doesn't does, just doesn't want a little bit. It wants it all. It wants it all. Have a look in 1 Kings chapter 20. So we're in 2 Kings chapter 20. Look at 1 Kings chapter 20. At this point, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, he's gathered together his host, he's gathered together his armies. And, uh, and he's gathered together also 32 kings that are, that are with him, and he's come up against, against the king. And, um, and he's commanded all the silver and the gold. Have a look at uh, verse 5. So he's commanded, first of all, to the king, he's demanded all the silver, all the gold, his wives and his children, right? That's what he's demanded of Ahab. And Ahab hasn't held it back either. He's been willing to give it. Could you imagine doing that? Imagine coming coming knocking on your door, I want your wife, I want your children, I want everything else that you've got, all your silver, all your gold. I have a look at verse 5. And the messengers came again and said, Thus speaketh Ben-Hadad, saying, Although I have sent unto thee, saying, Thou shalt deliver me thy silver and thy gold and thy wives and thy children. Yet will I send my servants unto thee tomorrow about this time, and they shall search thine house and the houses of thy servants, and it shall be that whatsoever is pleasant in thine eyes, they shall put it in their hand and take it away. Hmm. What is pleasant in thine eyes? They'll take away. Verse 7 says, And then... The king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark, I pray you, and see how this man seeketh mischief. For he sent unto me for my wives and for my children and for my silver and for my gold, and I denied him not. You can't enter into a peace treaty with sin. You just can't do it. You can't enter into a peace treaty with sin. Sin will have its way with you. You can't dictate the terms. You can't dictate the terms. When the robber is permitted entry, the terms are his terms. And he will take all that is pleasant in thine eyes. Sin will always cost you more than you're willing to pay. Sin will always cost you more than you're willing to pay. If you can only remember that, 
just that one point in this message, it will be such a blessing. Sin will always cost you more than you are willing to pay. Let's say you... Uh, the ladies like to go shopping, I, I know that. I'm not a fan of shopping too much. I like to... Even when I go to Bunnings, believe it or not, I go there, I get what I want and I leave, you know. So I don't like to browse around because there's other things that I don't really need that I might... Anyway, so as a lady, you, you, you go into High Point or wherever those beautiful places are with all the beautiful clothes and you, and you behold and you see a, a beautiful Babylonish garment... You note, you note the price, and it's expensive. It's expensive, but you really desire it, and you want to take it, and you reason within yourself and how good it'll look on you, and, uh, and, um, and, and really, really, with such a garment, I will draw all men unto me, or all others unto me. <laughs> and, um, and with that opportunity, I can share Christ. Eh? Eh? I can talk the gospel, you know. I mean, people will come up to me and will give me an opportunity to share the gospel. That's a good enough reason to buy the garment, isn't it? So God will be pleased with me if I buy this dress. You've committed to the Sars lady that you will certainly buy the garment only at the price that's on the sticker, only to discover that you've also got uh, sales tax, federal tax and local taxes that need to be added to the price. Friends, sin's always going to cost you more than you're willing to pay. It's always going to cost you more than you're willing to pay. There's no fire that can be quenched when you feed it. Nor is there any sin that can be contained when you let it go in your life. It can't be contained. Sin always lieth at the door, and unto you shall be his desire. And that's spoken of in Genesis chapter 4. So in this verse, we are exhorted to live against the flesh... Remember the text says we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. The second point of the message is we are exhorted to live after the Spirit. Now look at verse 13 of Romans chapter 8. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. The second half of verse 13 says, But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Starve. Starve the fire of the flesh. Remove from it the fuel. Take away the oxygen. There's no possible way that that fire can burn you through. Okay? Mortify the deeds of the body. The Apostle speaks of a practical effort where to engage in mortify, mortify. Oxford English Dictionary defines it this way. It says that it is to kill, to deprive of life, to render insensible, to destroy the vitality, vigour or activity of, to neutralise the effect or value of, to deaden, to dull and to bring into subjection by the practice of self-denial. Pretty good, lengthy explanation of the word mortify, isn't it? It's a good picture of the things that we are to do. Turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians in the New Testament. One of the epistles of Paul, one of the smaller epistles of Paul in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 3. There's a method and a, a way in which 
we are to do things for the Lord. And um, in verse 1 of Colossians chapter 3, it gives you a reason for it too. He says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things saith the wrath of sake, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time, when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. The Bible says elsewhere to resist the devil and he will flee from you, but not live after the flesh. you notice in that text, who's he talking to? Is he speaking to unbelievers? No, not even in that passage in Corinthians. It's speaking to believers. An exhortation, another exhortation to move away from the things that are of the flesh. What does that tell you about Christians? Does it tell you that we're perfect? Does it tell you that we obey every single command of the law, that we're not tempted to do anything? No. It speaks about our temptations. It speaks about those inordinate affections that come upon our lives. But he says also here that we are to mortify them. We are to do our work to stop giving ourselves over to these things. There's a lot of portions in Scripture that Christians are encouraged and exhorted to live holy lives. Nowhere does the Bible teach that a Christian is not changed by the Spirit who leads him. We are changed. There is a change. No longer does he mind the things of the flesh. Remember the the portion that we were talking about last week? We don't mind the things of the flesh. We don't follow after the things of the flesh as far as that is our uh, our natural constitution anymore. That's been changed. That's been changed. Okay? Nowhere does the Bible demonstrate a benefit for life lived according to our own desires, our old desires. Nowhere does the Bible teach that we will be satisfied with the pathetic desires of the flesh. And they are pathetic. They are pathetic. You really believe you're going to live your best life now? There's a book under that title, isn't it? Live your best life now. Who wrote Joel Osteen, yes, yes. Good Christian preacher, pastor, mega church man in the United States. Massive following. Live your best life now. Live your best life now was his, is his mantra. Um, we're going to live our best life now in a manner in which, the same manner that people don't know Christ. I want you to just think about it for a minute. If the entire world... Of that entire world, there's such a small percentage of actually born-again Christians, and you came up with a figure last time, didn't you, Pastor Frank? It was around about 1%, 1.5% maybe, of true born-again Christians. If the entire world, including born-again Christians, are actually following after the nature of the flesh, and that's a good nature, 
What should we be expecting to see in the world? What do we see in the world? Right, the world is set on a course of self-destruction. You know? It's set on a course of self-destruction. Do you think these people aren't following their flesh? That's all they're doing is following after the flesh. Families are being destroyed because husbands are following the flesh. Families are being destroyed because wives are following the flesh. You know? It doesn't matter whether a man is in an adulterous relationship or a woman is reading Fifty Shades of Grey. Does it make any difference? It doesn't make any difference. And it doesn't have to be something pornographic. It can actually be a romance novel. My life doesn't look like that at all. You know? Anything, anything that creates within you a level of dissatisfaction with what you have. It doesn't matter whether you're watching the block on television. It doesn't matter whether you're watching something else that is not encouraging, that is not edifying, that all it does is gather and fill your lusts. It's designed to give you a dissatisfaction with what you have. Isn't that the standard sales pitch idea? That's it, isn't it? You want to follow a sales course, what you have to do is make sure that the client that you're speaking to is dissatisfied with what they have and that you have the answer that, that will make them satisfied. Do you think the world's not following after that? Well, why are you doing it? Why do I do it? Why do we follow after the things that the world is falling apart with? If you want to have a blessed life, you need to turn from those things. And if you're a born-again Christian, you need to walk after the Spirit. You need to be led by the Spirit and walked after the Spirit. In James chapter 4, again, James is speaking to Christians. And he says this, he says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses. Now, I love you guys, I really do, you know, and I know that James loved the people that he was writing to. I haven't called you any of these names, so you've got nothing to pick on me about, okay? James. James is saying, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And we've got that picture even in most modern churches today. We've got churches that are trying to reach out to the youth by being like the youth. They're trying to reach out to the world by being like the world. To introduce them to a God who is nothing like the world. Does that make sense to you? And we're doing the same thing. We're following after the things of the world because we think we're going to be satisfied and yet we can look at the world and witness the dissatisfaction. We live in a first world country and we're depressed. We've got the biggest suicide rates in the world, in the Western world. And yet we're a first world country. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. You're chasing riches. The rich are never satisfied. They also suffer with depression and with suicide. Chasing pleasure. Pleasure is your gig. It's never enough and you can't live there. If you've got a travel bug, and by the way, a travel bug is a travel bug. If you've ever gone travelling... You know, you know what I'm talking about. TV bug, car bug, leisure bug. You've got a craving for new tech, for hoarding, for gambling, for reveling. Name it. Name it. That's your desires. That's your desire. Proverbs 30, 15 says, There are three things that are never satisfied. Yea, four things that say not it is enough. The grave, 
the barren womb, the earth that is not filled with water, and the fire that saith not, it is enough. Fire is never quenched, and nor is the lust of the flesh. You give yourself a little bit over to it, and it will desire more. The richest and wisest king who ever lived said, this stuff is all vanity. Guys, you're chasing after the wind. That's what you're doing. If you're chasing after the flesh, you're chasing after the wind. And yet, everywhere in the Bible, we find contentment is filled in Christ. Our contentment is filled in Christ. Everywhere we see Scripture encourage us to living after the Spirit of God. Why? Because it's in Him that we live and we move and we have our being. It's He that fulfills our desires. It's He that fulfills our needs and our wants. It's all found in Christ. And every time we're trying to find that fulfillment in something other than Christ, we're continually dissatisfied. And if you're born again, you also know what I'm talking about. But He is the one who fills us with joy and with hope and with a peace that passes all understanding. Third point here is we are exhorted to a worthy creditor. Exhorted to a worthy creditor. Now, with regard to the indebtedness, remember our text spoke about this, so we're just going to step back a little bit. Um, The text presumes that there is another to whom we are indebted. He says there, we are debtors. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you, we are debtors. Verse 9 and 12. If Christ be in you, we are debtors. Verse 10 and 12. And if he that raised up Christ from the dead and shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you, we are debtors. Verses 11 and 12. The text tells us to whom we are not indebted to, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh, but also tells us that we are indeed debtors. To whom then are we debtors? When you look through the text, you'll notice that there's an antithesis. Have you noticed that? There's an antithesis right through this. When he speaks about the flesh, there's another entity there. Verse 5 sort of spells it out for us a little bit. In Romans chapter 8, he says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. Clearly, it's God. The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the antithesis of the flesh and is God. If the flesh be not worthy of any affection or devotion, is God worthy? (laughs) How many ways is God worthy of our devotion? Let me read this to you. Of all that Christ has done for us who were once dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1, whose end was to be burned with the thorns and the briars, Hebrews 6.8, whose trials and sufferings and lives would have served no benefit and no purpose, and who had each day stored up wrath unto the day of wrath, Romans 2.5, to receive as our wages only the righteous judgment of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 6.11. Elsewhere it tells us that we're clean, Now we are made alive. Now we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Heirs of salvation and a true hope of heaven. 
whose trials and sufferings we know work together for good to them that love God, Romans 8, 28. Now we know that we have purpose. We know that we've got purpose now. We've got reason. We've got value within our lives. Our eyes have been opened, Luke 24, 31, whose fear is done away and replaced by faith in Mark 4.40, to whom the grave has lost its victory and death has lost its sting, 1 Corinthians 15.55, and to whom is given eternal rewards even for a cup of water given in the name of Christ, Mark 9.11. And finally, who have with them the greatest news on earth to share to all the world, that they too may share with you the glory of God. And how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things, Romans 10, 15. So consider and know the certainty, says Paul. We are debtors. We are debtors. Let me ask you a question. If you're in Romans chapter 8, can you please just turn over to Romans chapter 12, just for a moment. And I want to ask you, if you think it's unreasonable for Paul to make this request, to, to beseech you in such a way. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Is it unreasonable for us to give ourselves completely to the Lord? Can't we do it? Can't we do it? Can't we give ourselves completely to God? Could you imagine what your life is going to be like if you can give yourself completely to God? If you can make that decision, that you can spend the time in His Word, that you can spend time in prayer, that you can spend time doing the things that He desires of you? Is he not worthy? Is he not a worthy creditor? Hasn't he done enough for us? We are his purchased possession in Ephesians 1.14. We are bought with a price in 1 Corinthians 6.20. Purchased with his own blood, Acts 20.28. 20, we are not our own, 1 Corinthians 6.19. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, Ephesians 2.10. To whom is given the kingdom of heaven, Mark 5, 3. Please show me where we're not indebted to Christ. Where are we not indebted to God? Peter says that he called us out of darkness into his marvellous light, 1 Peter 2, 9. Is he not a worthy creditor? We are indebted, brethren. But could you imagine... I don't know what it's like, because I've never experienced being in debt and having to pay something and actually be blessed while I'm paying it. I've never experienced that. I've not, I don't know if you have, but I know it doesn't matter what you find yourself indebted to. It doesn't matter whether it's a car. It doesn't matter whether it's a house. Um, you, 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 you really like these things. You really enjoy these things, and you want to have these things, so you get yourself in debt in order to have it now, because you want your best life now. And the novelty sort of wears off. But the repayments continue. And they continue. And they continue. And I don't know about you, but I sort of get tired of paying them. But you know, this debt, this debt that we owe the Lord, it's the only one that keeps giving back. It's the only one that keeps giving back. 
He blesses us with that joy. He blesses us with hope. He gives us peace that passes all understanding. And not only that, He's given us such a treasure that we can share and have that joy multiplied. How is that possible to have such a debt? Oh, he's a worthy creditor. He's a worthy creditor. Second last point is this. We're exhorted to walk worthy of our adoption. Here we've got the sixth and final contrast of the passage that we began last week. It's the sixth contrast. In verse 15, he says, For ye, for ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now you need to consider that there are three states. There are three states. Now only two are given here, the flesh and the spirit. But these are three states. So I want you to consider them with respect to fear. The first one is that there are those that have no fear before their eyes. There are those that have no fear before their eyes. Remember, we just read in verse 15, it says, For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Okay? But there are those, and I know that you've shared the gospel with some of those, who don't even have the fear of God before their eyes. There's no concern. But they don't even think of God. You know, they're walking around as if God doesn't even exist. Um, Jesus actually spoke a parable in Luke chapter 12. He says, and he spoke a parable unto them saying, The ground of a certain rich man bought forth plentifully. And he thought within, within himself saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I'll pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? See, a level of ignorance in which they think that there's peace and safety. Ah. But then sudden destruction. It's like a man who walks about living his daily life and uh, completely unaware that there is a cancer in him eating him alive. Okay, that's, that's what it's like. There's no fear, is there? If you're completely ignorant to what's eating you alive on the inside, there's no fear. Ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss as far as they're concerned. The second individual are those who have received the spirit of bondage to fear. These are those who have the knowledge of judgment, those whose hearts are laid bare and find themselves greatly concerned for their eternal state. The Spirit has convicted their hearts and they are bound to the law of God, but yet remain greatly concerned that they've not done enough. They fear for their souls and they have a fear of God. The Bible actually refers to those. It refers to those as God-fearers. I remember Brother Allen speaking about that in a sermon that he preached, speaking about God-fearers. Gentiles, people who are not part of uh, the Jewish state, um, were God-fearers. They feared God. And there's some examples of it in, in, in the Bible. In Acts chapter 2, 37, this is the time where the Spirit of God came upon many people. Um, Peter's preaching. Peter's preaching. You know, remember, ready, fire, aim, Peter? 
Peter's preaching. And now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? What do you see here? You see an element of fear. When they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. There's a jailer that was that was convinced of the righteousness of Paul and Silas. And an earthquake occurred. An earthquake occurred and he was sure that they had escaped. And he knows the punishment for those that escaped his care. And that is death. So he was willing to kill himself. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Do thyself no harm, for they're all here. Could you imagine that? How many of you, I mean, how many of you think, if, if, if especially today's charismatic Christians, if, if the door opens to a cell or the walls come crashing down, how many of you would not be thinking, Ha! Oh, God's delivered me. God's delivered me. God's created an earthquake for all the walls to come down and I can be free. What was it that both Paul and Silas understood about this sign of God? Was it for their benefit? What was it that they thought immediately of the jailer? Why did they stay? Why did they stay? They stayed there because they knew that there's something else involved here. There's something else involved here. And verse 29 says, Then he called for a light, this is the, this is the jailer, and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? A fear of God that these two men of God witnessed to them, to him, about the righteousness of God. That they stayed there. Do thyself no harm for we are all here. My goodness. What a care for others rather than their own selves. And how much we are so quick to think of our own selves. And remember also Paul when he was Saul. On the road to Damascus was there not fear there. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? What wilt thou have me to do? Fear and even despair. Like the man who's aware of the trouble in his body and has sought advice only to find out that cancer is present. There is a real fear. There is a real fear when you discover that your time is short. And brethren, time is short. Time is short. The third, third person... That's referred to here are those who have received the spirit of adoption whereby they cry, Abba, Father. These are those who have found rest in Christ. Peace is that which fills their hearts. Love and faith is that which guides their thoughts. These are the blessed beneficiaries of the first 16 verses of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. These are the justified of Romans chapter 5 who have peace with God. These are those who Jesus Christ prayed for to the Father in his prayer in John chapter 17. And these are those same ones who we see here are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Like the man who discovered the cure for cancer. His own cancer and everybody else's. That's what that's like. That's what we have. We've got a cure. We've got a cure. But the gospel needs to go out there to arouse the deaf world. We need to open up the eyes of those that are around us. We can't forget this. We need to be thinking of other people other than ourselves. And this is the reason why you need to mortify sin. 
This is the reason why you need to walk after the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. I've said it time and time again, it's not about you. It's not about you. But everything that you walk in, everything that you indulge, affects those that are around you. You know, they've said that no man's an island. You know, when it comes to sin, it's exactly the same. Could you imagine that growing in Christ, even though we all struggle with the same stuff, and I'm no better, I put my hand up as, you know, I could sometimes call myself the chief of sinners as well, but I know that, you know, you guys would argue with me, and Paul has already argued with me. Um, But there's no difference. But if you could grow in Christ, could you imagine the people that you would be able to touch? The sharing of the gospel. Who feels like sharing the gospel when they're in the middle of sin? Who feels like sharing the gospel when they're struggling with the flesh? I can tell you, I don't. I don't. And maybe that's a reason why I don't share the gospel as often as I do, or as often as I should. It makes a difference to those that are around you. Like Paul and Silas, we can't be thinking of ourselves and our own good. We do this and we follow after the flesh, after the spirit, because we desire the good of others. In verse 16, it says, The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There is found in every believer the spirit of God. He bears witness to us that we are children of God. And he confirms this within us. We sense his prompting when we live. We experience his presence when we pray. We feel his grief when we sin. God has not left us without witness. God has given him as a surety of salvation, a guarantee, a down payment, if you will, of what we will inherit as children of God. If you do not have his spirit bearing witness with your spirit, Uh, you are none of his. You are none of his. This is not something anyone else can have for anyone else, but the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Every second Sunday we're encouraged to examine ourselves. We did it this morning. Uh, To know whether ye be in the faith, as 1 Corinthians 13.5 says. There's nothing of greater importance than to you personally, than to know in whom, uh, to know who dwells within you. If the Spirit of God is in you, then His Spirit bears witness to your spirit that you are children of God. It's experiential. There's an element of this that's experiential. We see and we experience God working within our lives. But maybe, maybe we're not sensing that as often as we need to. And that's where prayer makes the biggest difference. Last point this morning is that we are glorified together. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. On this last verse, um, I'm going to bring out more the next time because it's going to be part of the next the next message. Uh, but consider only the notion of inheritance. Just consider that for a second. As children of God, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And inheritance isn't earned. It's not earned. Um, above all, also we're promised reward and faithfulness as heirs of God. 
And finally, for all our suffering in this life, as we suffer with Christ, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Because we also know that all things work together for good to them that love him, in Romans 8.28, that we might also be glorified together. Again, it's something that I need to bring out next time. But if we would be exhorted to live after the Spirit, because that's whose we are. We are Christ's. We've looked at five points in this passage. Exhorted to live against the flesh. Exhorted to live after the Spirit. Exhorted to a worthy creditor. Exhorted to walk worthy of our adoption and glorified together. We are never exhorted or encouraged in Scripture to do that which is not possible to do. Hmm. God has given us His Word to teach us as, and to teach, to teach us and guide us. He's given us pastors and teachers to help bring us understanding and to share in your blessings when we teach well. How cool is that? So when you do well, when you do well, I get to share in it. I get to share in those blessings. Do you know that nothing grieves a pastor more than those that walk away from the Lord? Nothing grieves brethren more than those other brethren who walk away from the Lord. We're broken in our own hearts because people that we love are walking away from the Lord and not growing in holiness. You know? And nothing gives us a greater joy, like the Apostle John says, that when we walk in the truth and we walk in holiness, we rejoice in that and we share in that joy and in that blessing. He brings us together in the communion of saints to encourage us to holy living. He has given us gifts that we may use for the edifying of the church. He has given us the gospel of Christ to bring others to repentance and to share in their hope. He'll give us rewards that moth and rust will not corrupt nor thieves break through and steal. Rewards that will last eternity. And he even has a book of remembrance written for those who think upon the Lord. Did you know that? Why have I share that with you? When you get home, have a look at Malachi 3.16. You heard of John 3.16? When you get home, have a look at Malachi 3.16. Can you imagine that? A book of remembrance for every time we think upon the Lord. Wow. Even our tears are bottled and recorded in his book, Psalm 56.8. Even our tears. He's given us the ability to communicate directly to God. Boldly we may come to the throne of grace and petition him. He grants to us forgiveness, peace, faith, wisdom in abundance, always answering yes when we ask him. These are the four prayers that we can ask of the Lord and he always answers yes. Always answers yes. He's reserved and secured our place in heaven that we may live assured of hope. Finally, he has given to us his Holy Spirit that we may be led, prompted and guided to holy living to which we ourselves are the beneficiaries for the glory of God. Work, walk worthy of your adoption. Brethren, don't follow after the things of the flesh. Don't follow after them. They give you no benefit. But follow after the Spirit. You're led by Him. Live according to that. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the exhortation of Paul. We thank you for the wonderful truth of Scripture. We thank you that there are so many passages that we could turn to that promise to us and speak to us of the blessing that comes from you. And I ask you, dear Lord, that you will bless my brethren and help them this week to make those decisions that are necessary, that they may live unto Christ 
and that they may indeed present themselves a living sacrifice unto God. We praise you in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.